Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews, chapter 5. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 11. During the time when we were away, I began a series in the book of Hebrews that I want to return to this morning. Uh, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to consider what I think are precious verses again today. As we do so, I um, am thankful for the ongoing fellowship of uh, our small groups. Uh, most of our small groups have been able to continue electronically uh, with technology that none of us had ever heard of or used prior to three months ago. But uh, I'm thankful for Sunday school teachers and life group leaders and others who have been faithful to that task and for you for trying to stay connected and love people and shepherd people well. But uh, we, we look forward to the day when they will return to campus. We, uh, we, we actually see that day down the road. It won't be uh, too many more weeks in the future, we trust. But uh, right now we're continuing to move along electronically. Uh, I'm thankful for electronic means as a church. We've been able to stay connected uh, sermonically. We preached a lot of sermons. Uh, I actually read an article uh, entitled, If You're Preaching to No One in the Room, Is It Really Preaching? Well, I can tell you it doesn't feel like really preaching, uh, but it's not about me, right? So I was fine with that. But uh, this room is different today because there are actually live human beings in it, and I'm thankful for the time that we have to invest let me uh, try to create an image for you as we begin in a moment uh, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. I want you to uh, imagine, and for some of you it wouldn't be imagination because you've actually done this, but imagine that uh, you were going to enroll in some sort of a class to help you get into shape, get into shape. Now it's true that most adults don't possess the same waist size they did in high school. Most adults. I remember the day. Well, I guess I'll just stop right there. I remember the day when I was a shadow of my current self. Um, I remember the day. And because Susan and I dated in high school, she remembers the day and rem reminds me of it quite often. Uh, by the way, Susan actually weighs less today than she did in high school. She would not want me to say that, but she's not in this service. Uh, I won't say that in the next service where she will be. But uh, she, and because of that, she, uh, she's all the time pointing out guys who are staying in shape and saying, why, why can't you stay in shape? Well, in my mind, I look like I did when I was 17. Periodically, I'm reminded I'm not that guy. But imagine you've enrolled in some sort of class to help you get into shape, and the first day, the trainer, the coach, the instructor calls everyone together, and he's going to give everybody kind of an orientation and a pep talk. And what is he going to do? Well, it depends on who your trainer is. Perhaps your trainer is one of these soft, tender-hearted guys, and he's going to say, now I know every one of you want to be you know, in shape or you wouldn't be here. You're paying good money to be here, so uh, I want you to know we're going to work hard, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You're going to smile. By the way, people who are working hard don't smile. That's just not what happens. If you find a runner who's smiling, that guy's weird. He's just weird. 
Uh, so anyway, so the God takes the soft, tender approach. Uh, perhaps some of us can remember maybe high school athletics, maybe even some college athletics. Uh, we're going to have a coach who's going to take the opposite approach. He's going to bear down, and uh, he's going to shame us, talk about what a slug we've become. You know, we, uh, we could have, should have, might have, ought to, but we didn't. And now look at what has happened. And uh, he, he tells us how, how bad it's been and how bad we've been, and, uh, but that he's going to fix that. And he encourages us. He sort of, if you will, crushes us in order to resurrect us and bring us back and say, but do you see how this could change? And uh, he reminds us of how painful it is to get out of shape and, and uh, how wonderful it's going to be to actually get back into shape. And uh, we're, we're eager to see that. Well, if you could keep that sort, of, that sort of experience in your mind, the paragraph that we're about to read is written by a man to the Hebrews, the, the author of the book of Hebrews, who is unknown. Uh, some call him a pastor, but, but his approach is similar to a trainer. His approach is to say, I know what you need, but you're not ready for it. I know what you need, but you've showed no interest in being ready for it. I know what you need, and I know what you even want, but you are the reason you don't have it. You're hindering your progress. You're hindering your effectiveness. So that's the, if you will, the approach that he's taking in the paragraph that we're going to read. Now maybe when you read the Bible, you anticipate that every paragraph you read is for the purpose of teaching you new information. There are people who approach the Bible strictly from a knowledge standpoint. I need to read the Bible, know the Bible, and I, if I know the Bible, somehow I'm a better person. And so your idea is knowledge. Your, your, your way to advance your spiritual life and the dynamics of your spiritual life is just to know more stuff. How A connects to B, to connects to C, and so forth. And I will tell you, as, as a human being, I love knowledge. I can't get enough. I'm a information junkie. I love information, and I love Bible information. I like to see how that connects to this and that connects to that. And if you haven't been around here much, you don't know that. But those who have know that I love that aspect. And eventually, in this book, we're about to get into how this connects to that and, and in the person of the life of an ancient Hebrew priest king named Melchizedek. We'll come to that in the seventh chapter. But today, before we get to Melchizedek, before we get to all of that knowledge, he's going to jab him in the ribs. He's going to punch him in the gut. He's going to slap him in the face. And he's going to tell him, look, you need to know this, but you can't know it. You don't know it, and the reason you don't know it is because of you. It's not because God hasn't told you. It's not because it's not out there. The reason you don't understand it, the reason you don't deal with it, is because of you. So this is the, the paragraph that we've seen thus far in Hebrews, and there'll be one more in the 10th chapter, where the pastor or the author of this book is going to just, he's going to look at his class, and he's going to say, I'm going to take you to the woodshed. I'm going to take you to the gymnasium, and we're going to work. You're going to work 
hard because you've not made a practice of working hard. And the reason you're in the shape you're in is because of you. So maybe that's not the way you like to read the Bible, but that's exactly what's happening right here. This is the pastor getting hard with his people. That's the chapter. All right, so let's read, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11. As we do, I would ask you to note that the preceding verse, verse 10, concludes with one word, Melchizedek. It seems he's going to talk about Melchizedek, and he does so in the seventh chapter. The entire seventh chapter is dedicated to this character named Melchizedek. But Melchizedek is a shadowy, and I mean that as a positive, not a negative, a positive, a shadowy character in the Old Testament. The Bible says virtually nothing about Melchizedek until the book of Hebrews. And the pastor, the writer of this book, is going to tell them that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, not a high priest like Levi. The Levitical tribe, the son of Jacob, Levi, his tribe is to be the priestly tribe. Every priest comes out of the tribe of Levi, except one, Jesus. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And so that is a disconnect, seemingly, unless you understand the deeper, bigger, bolder, longer story. If you understand what's really going on with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, then you can understand what's going on here. But they don't understand, and the reason they don't is because they are at fault. So he tells them so, verse 11. About this, meaning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and internal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, if you'll remember, and I suspect many of you do, some of you won't, but that's okay, uh, the vast majority of the book of Hebrews deals with one theme, and that is that Jesus is a better high priest. We've, we've seen already that Jesus is better than the angels, that Jesus is better than the prophets, Moses and Joshua and so forth. Jesus is uh, actually enacts a better covenant. Uh, he, the, old, the New Testament is better than the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, so forth. We, the, so if you, if you want a little mantra, if you will, tagline for, for the book of Hebrews, the tagline would simply be, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He says that again and again and again. Jesus is better. But the number one thing, if you will, the poster child for why Jesus is better is because he is a better high priest. Let me identify it differently. Friend, our great problem 
is not that we're not religious. Because everybody is religious. Everybody. Romans chapter 1 says God has given every heart, a human heart, a conscience. Romans chapter 1. And every man is either true or untrue to his conscience. As it turns out, according to Romans 1, he's untrue. Every man violates his own conscience. That's why men feel guilt and shame. And I use the word men in a generic sense, men and women. That's why every person here is guilty and feels guilty. Because you have a conscience that God has given you and you violated it. You violate it regularly, by the way. That's why he says every man is without excuse because you won't even keep your own law. It's not that you don't keep God's law. You don't even keep your own law. You violate your own conscience. And God will hold you accountable for not, violent, for, for not being obedient even to your own law written on your own heart by your own hand. So every one of us has a conscience. And every one of us, therefore, has a code, if you will. Why would, why would a person commit murder? Because... He doesn't think it's wrong. Why would other people not commit murder? Because he thinks it is wrong. Steal, lie, so forth. Go on and on and on. Why do people do what they do? Because their conscience permits it or they just get outside of their conscience. They violate their conscience. Either way, they're guilty. They're guilty of God's law or they're guilty of man's law written on their conscience. They're, they're guilty. And so that's a problem. That is a, such a problem that when you die and you experience judgment at the hands of God, listen to me, because of God's promised judgment, friend, you are in danger. That's our problem. We are in profound danger unless somebody mitigates those circumstances. Unless somebody reduces the threat or unless somebody saves us. Saves us from what? From the penalty of our sins. The sins of violating God's law and our own law. We are in profound danger. And every person who's ever lived is in danger until he's not. So how does a holy God talk to a man like me? He doesn't, friend. He doesn't. Read the Bible. What happens when people come into the presence of God? They fall on their face and they eat dirt. That's what they do. The notion of drawing near to God and he's some heavenly sugar daddy and he's our comfort pillow is not biblical in the Old Testament. That's why in the New Testament, because of the work of Christ, Christ stands between the judgment of God and the sin of man. Or if you will, the holy God cannot tolerate the unholiness, lack of holiness of man. And someone has to stand in between to be that go-between. So the Old Testament system of the high priest was designed to serve as that go-between between holy God and unholy man. God needs to, to deal with us, and we need God to not deal with us. And only Jesus can buffer that. Only Jesus can remedy that. Only Jesus 
can be the shock absorber, if you will, of that. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to celebrate that again and again and again. Thanks be to God, Jesus comes between us and the anger of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God, and he takes it upon himself so that now we can look to God and call him Abba, which is the familiar name for, for father in Hebrew, sort of akin to daddy, but not quite that familiar but it's the intimate term it's not just old heavenly god it's it's abba now how is it that an unholy man can ever address god as abba (laughs) there's only one way and that's if somebody stands in between and that person is jesus That's why this is good news, friend. It's really good news. So we read a passage that says, I need to tell you more and more and more about Jesus, verse 11, but you can't handle the truth. You can't. And he gives us three reasons very quickly. I want you to see them. Notice first one in verse 11. You can't handle the truth because you're dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now, interesting, the Greek word here translated dull of hearing is the word for sluggishness. We didn't read chapter 6 all the way uh, to verse 10, but if you were, uh, pardon me, verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12, he concludes the next section, which we'll read next time, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he begins this section, I've only cut it it in half for the interest of time, but he begins this section talking about how sluggish they are, and he concludes the section talking about how sluggish they are. And so in the middle, he's going to detail a great bit of that. But from the outset, this is his point. You can't handle the truth because you're sluggish. Now, some have translated that word lazy. And I think maybe that goes a little too far, but nonetheless... You're clearly sluggish. Now, how is it that that people are sluggish? This particular word was typically used to describe a man who was unwilling to tackle hard work. So, for the sake of argument, we'll call it a man who's soft. So, he's, he's unwilling to tackle hard work. Now, maybe he's distracted by other things. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he has misplaced priorities. How does a man get out of shape? How does a man get bored? How does a man get distracted? How how does a man get to where he doesn't care? Well, the answer to that question is is endless. We could talk and talk and talk, and it varies virtually for every man. But the point is, he doesn't plan to end up there. It's not like in his young 15-year-old self, he, he sits there and imagining his future, and he said, I'm, I'm thrilled about the idea of being a bum. That's not what he thinks about. He's thinking about being somebody, you know, famous, popular, wealthy, powerful, strong, whatever, respected. That's what he's thinking about. But then, but then he wakes up one day, and he's sluggish, and he doesn't care, and he's got misplaced priorities. He's drifted. He's drifted. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christian people, and he tells them, you're out of shape. You're sluggish. 
you're lazy. You can't handle the truth because you're dull of hearing. Think about that for a moment. I want to tell you the great things of God. I want to tell you how A connects to B, connects to C, connects to D, and how this is this grand narrative, and that every detail in your life, every hair on your head, every freckle on your skin, every circumstance in your life is under the purview of God, and that God is at work weaving all these events and these circumstances in your life, and you can have comfort and peace, and you don't have to be afraid. You can have joy and hope in the midst of turmoil. You can watch the world fall apart before your eyes every night on television. And you can be at rest. Because you lean not on your understanding, but rather look to God. Hope in God. Trust in God. And the reason you don't is because you don't know the Word of God. And the reason you don't know the Word of God is because you don't care to know the love of the Word of God. I heard a preacher say several years ago, he said one of the great advantages of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and everything else that's coming along, One of the great advantages of social media is that we're not going to have a single excuse when we stand before God for not knowing the Bible. Because the normal excuse is typically, I didn't have enough time. Well, friend, The world's addiction to social media has proven we got more time than we know what to do with. We can't handle the truth because we're lazy. We don't know the Bible because we're sluggish. We don't care to know the Bible, so we don't know the Bible. How do we end up there? This is a trainer on day one in the orientation meeting, looking at his students and getting in their business pretty strong. There's a second thing he says, verse 12. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You can't handle the truth because you're immature. You're immature. The, the word here translated basic principles of the oracles of God, that's a word that means the basic, or the, if you will, the, the fundamental building blocks. It, in language studies, this is the word for ABCs, just to, to learn the fundamentals. It, it's not syntax. It's not grammar. It's not even vocabulary. It's just ABCs. It's just learning how A is not B and B is not C and the different sounds. It's elementary. It's the basic principles of the oracles of God. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you're still learning your ABCs about God and his work and his Bible, his word. You need milk, not solid food. You are, he says, verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled 
You are unskilled. The, the implication there, that's where the metaphor of milk breaks down. We all know that in biology, a child needs milk, but as his digestive system matures, and it will, and it does, and if it doesn't, there's some pathology involved, there's sickness involved. It's, it's automatic, seemingly, to us. He doesn't have to work at it. The child doesn't have to work at, at actually wanting to move away from milk. He, he wants food. He needs food. He will pursue food. It's just automatic. However, in the spiritual realm, that is not the case. The metaphor breaks down. But nonetheless, he makes clear, verse 13, the onus is on you. The burden is on you. The responsibility is yours. In other words, the failure the failure to mature is not because of some passive response on your part, but rather some active response on your part. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. They are unskilled because though they had the opportunity to develop skills, their sluggishness, their laziness, their slothfulness, their dull of hearing did not profit them. You can't handle the truth because you are unskilled, because you are immature. At some point, we need to grow up, don't we? And if we don't, we have a problem. None of us want to see teenagers in diapers. None of us want to see teenagers drinking only milk. None of us want to be the parents of those teenagers. We want to see our children grow up into adulthood and push out into deep water and to make adult decisions and to choose adult ways and to prove themselves fruitful with adult context. That's what we want. And we want the same for our spiritual lives. We don't want our children to simply know the stories of Moses or Jonah or David Goliath and so forth, know the stories, but somehow don't understand how these ABCs, these foundational stories, actually weave together and form a tapestry of truth that we can take and apply to our lives. We can't handle the truth because we are immature, because we never got past the ABCs. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. But for most of us, we've been a Christian long enough. However long that is, it's long enough. It's long enough that we ought to know how A connects to B and connects to C. We ought, we ought to know more than the ABCs. We ought to be able to actually pronounce words. We ought, to, we ought to be able to put sentences together. We ought to understand more than we've proven ourselves to understand. You see, it's a trainer on day one. And he says, you're out of shape. And it's your fault. You're out of shape. And you're the only one who can do anything about it. And we're going to help you do something about it. Because I want you to be in shape. I want you to go on. I want you to get all of this. I've got wonderful things to tell you about the majesty of God and the glories of God and the wonders of God that's going to fuel your life for joy. Why are Christians so miserable? Because they don't know the Bible. 
Why are Christians so afraid? Because they don't know the Bible. I mean, name me one person that you know that would have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that stood before the king and said, look, throw me in the furnace if you want to. God doesn't have to save me. I don't care. What I care about is being faithful to God, and I am not going to bow down to you. Throw me in the furnace. Man, I'm telling you, we live in a culture of Christianity today that says, the furnace, oh no, God hates me. On the contrary, friend, God was about to throw down. And he needed three men to stand up and be faithful and understand how A connects to B and connects to C. You can't handle the truth because you're immature. You're unskilled. Lastly, 14, you can't handle the truth because you're untrained. Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained. That word trained there uh, uh, comes from the same word, same root word as the word gymnasium. We get the English word gymnasium from that word. Obviously, this is a verb. But you'll note... The goal of the gymnasium or the goal of training, the goal of spiritual training is to distinguish good from evil. Why do people act the way they act? Well, they act that way for two reasons. One, they don't know any better. They're not trained. Or B, they're just sinful and they violate their own code, their own law. I knew I wasn't supposed to kill him, but I got so angry I just killed him. Why do people kill people? Because they violate the law. They violate God's law. They violate their own law. People do these things because they are untrained, because they don't discern good from evil. And the reason they do that is because they are not applying themselves in the gymnasium. They're not allowing God to shape their lives. I'm telling you, people want what they want when they want it. We have a culture of softies. I want a little dose of God, enough God to give me a little fire insurance, guarantee I won't go to hell, and then that's all. That's all I want. And we have a culture of folks who've grown spiritually flabby. And so he's writing to these folks, and he says, listen, I want to tell you these wonderful truths, and I want to tell you about this guy named Melchizedek. You know, I I mentioned him, verse 10, chapter 5, and, and that's what kind of launched me into this now, bringing you into the training room exercise. Melchizedek, I want to I tell you how Jesus fulfills this great plan and how Jesus stands between you and God. And because of Jesus, you can have access to God. Because of Jesus, God will hear your prayers. Because of Jesus, you can have hope. Because of Jesus, you can have courage. Because of Jesus, you can have life. Because of Jesus, you can have everything you ever wanted. Because of Jesus, you can have eternal life and death. Not even death can kill you. Because of Jesus. And I want to tell you all about this Jesus. But you guys are still on milk. You guys left the gymnasium years and years and years and years ago, and you are not trained, and you're fat and flabby and out of shape, and you can't distinguish good from evil. I saw a shirt this week, literally this week. I don't own such a shirt. Those who know me know that I don't believe in luck. I really don't. I absolutely don't. Luck is the most bizarre human construct ever created. I don't believe in luck. 
But this shirt said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You've seen that, perhaps. The harder I work, the luckier I get. Now, I said, I don't believe in luck, but I do play golf. And any golfer will tell you that strange things happen. If you hit it in the trees and somehow it ends up back in the fairway, that's not because a squirrel did it. All right? A squirrel didn't throw it out. Somehow you hit a tree with your ball and it ends up in the fairway. If you hit it into a lake and it skips over the lake and goes over onto dry ground, friend, that is not luck because I don't believe in luck. But it's weird. It's really weird. It's not supposed to happen. But it's not luck. But I like that. The harder I work, the luckier I get. The harder I work, the luckier I get. That's his point here. The more you study, the more you apply yourself, the more you train yourself, then you have powers of discernment. Why is it that we don't know the difference between good and evil? Why is it that right and wrong is in such short supply? Why is it that we are so dense about these things and that things that seem basic to some are not even on the same scorecard with others? How is it that these things exist? Because these are people who, in spite of their age, in spite of their opportunity, in spite of their privilege, have squandered it. We've become a bunch of knowledge junkies. I've already admitted that I lean that direction. We know the Bible, but we don't know what to do with it. We know the facts, the story, the details, but we don't know how to apply that to our marriage. We don't know how to apply that to our business dealings. We don't know how to apply that to our cranky neighbor. We don't know how to be basic, kind people, forgiving people, patient people, good people. We don't know how to help others. By this time, we ought to be teachers. Not, that's not the word for formal teaching. That's for just regular life-on-life -life teaching. We ought to be teaching, training, passing on, and we're not. And the reason we're not is because we become dull of hearing, sluggish. We're untrained. So what does all this mean for us? Well, he says we, we ought to go beyond the ABCs. He lists the ABCs in the opening verses of chapter 6. I don't have time to get into that. But those are, those are all elements of the Old Covenant. Repentance, faith, ceremonial washings, resurrection, judgment. Those are all basic ABCs. That's A, B, C, D, E, F. On a, that's just stuff in the Old Testament. But how, how does all of that connect to God? How does all of that set the foundation for the coming of Christ? How does all of that impact me as a human being today? And how does any of that now fuel my life to give me hope, to give me a future, to give me confidence, to give me joy? How does any of that connect to that? Well, friends, that's where we are. So what do I, what I want you to do today? I want you to fall in love with Jesus, and I want you to fall in love with his word. I want this not to be a stranger to you. We've already read Hebrews 
The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the very marrow of our souls. This word right here. This is not a a classic. This is not a novel. This is not an outstanding work of fiction or nonfiction. This is not a book written by men, like every other book. This is the book of God. And every one of us have multiple copies in our possession. And we ignore it to our peril, to our weakness, because we're dull of hearing, sluggish, because we're immature, and because we're unwilling to be trained. Let this word have its perfect result in your life so that you may be able to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, knowledge and wisdom. This is the word of God. And God has graciously given it to us in every conceivable fashion. And we still ignore it. May God give us grace to know this word so that we can be helped, so we can be brave, so we can be strong, so we can be victorious. And one day on Judgment Day, The judgment day prophesied in the Old Testament. The judgment day promised in the New Testament. One day on judgment day, we'll stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your help today in pursuing Christ. Give us grace, much grace, as we love you, follow you, obey you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the help you've given us. Even this morning, we pray that our lives might reflect Christ and that we might fall in love with your word in a way that honors Jesus in ways that we can't even imagine. So thank you this morning. May the word of God ring true in our hearts and may we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. so well last